I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Coronavirus is a global pandemic. It affects all of us and every country in the world. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked. I feel there is a very strong political will uh, to work together and to succeed. Hi, welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and this is something of a special occasion. It's episode 150. It's actually more than that because we've done a bunch of extra editions as we're doing now for the coronavirus crisis, but this is officially the 150th episode of the regular weekly podcast. Let's have a quick listen to how it all began. Welcome everyone. This is EU Confidential, Politico's brand new podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, author of the Brussels Playbook column. Every week on this podcast, we're exploring the world of EU and European politics with the people who live it breathe it and obsess over it. In this week's show, we cut through the spin. That actually sounds a lot smoother than I expected, as it was recorded in an echoey conference room by someone who didn't really know what they were doing, namely me. So a big shout out to the original crew of Ryan Heath, Lena Aberus and Alva Finn, on whose shoulders we stand. And this is an occasion, above all, to thank you, our listeners, whether you've been there since the start or joined us along the way. We've just recorded another record month in listening figures, and we very much appreciate you being there. And we'll have a little more love for you at the end of the podcast. Before that, we'll also hear from French economist Thomas Piketty. But first, let's check in with our podcast panel. So a warm welcome to our uh, reduced in number this week uh, podcast panel as uh, Annabelle is on maternity leave. Um, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi. And Remontaz in Paris, who has persuaded her neighbours' workers to stop construction work for a while. Is that right? Yeah, some construction work started yesterday, the middle of the day, and they've been going at it since 8.30am. So mm. my apologies if you hear some knocking. Yeah, right. Well, this is these are the perils of confinement that maybe you don't think about that uh, you wouldn't even know about this stuff if you were in the office, but you sure know about it if you're stuck at home. Yeah, nowhere to run. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, quite literally in the, in, the, in the French lockdown, right? Yes. Or, or you can only run within a kilometre of your building. And after 8pm. Right, okay. Wow, then you really do have nowhere to run. Okay, uh, we uh, thought we would start by talking about uh, China. Uh, we at Politico broke the story Last week, uh, Florian Eder had it in playbook that the EU's foreign policy arm, the External Action Service, had repair, uh, prepared a report which was critical of Chinese disinformation around coronavirus and that it was expected to be published that day. The report didn't come out, uh, it continued not to come out. People started asking, where is this report? 
And we later learned that China uh, exerted or tried to exert a great deal of diplomatic pressure when it heard about this report and tried to get the findings changed. Um, The External Action Service did not cover itself in glory here by uh, insisting there was no report to see, trying to, I'm I'm afraid there's no other word for it, but trying to smear our own uh, accurate reporting, Uh, was then caught in the act of doing that. And the report was finally uh, published and the EEES insist uh, still no problem here. There were just two different versions of reports, an internal and an external one. The external one was finally published and they didn't bow to pressure. But if you look compared to the draft that uh, that Florian had, the version that Florian had, you know, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that um, some of the wording for public consumption was at the very least toned down. Um, Matt, what do you make of it all? Well, I would just add that we've gotten a lot of feedback from people within the EEAS and the commission who confirmed that this issue was being discussed at the highest levels, and it was very controversial, and there was a lot of back and forth about what they should do concerning the Chinese complaints. So it it is definitely something that has been on the top of of their minds over the past couple of weeks. And in fact, I I believe there's a hearing in the EU Parliament on this subject today. What I make of it is that the EU writ large, not just uh, the Commission, also the, the, the member states, are very reluctant at the moment to take a too aggressive tone with China because everyone knows that this crisis will pass at some point, and China remains a very important trading partner. It has huge investments in many European countries. It is a massive market for European exporters like Germany. So you're seeing countries here trying to strike a balance between being maybe slightly critical of China's handling of certain aspects of the coronavirus response, while also not necessarily signing up to the Trumpian, you know, uh, no holds barred, just blasting them at at every turn. But it's it's a difficult balance, as as we saw last week with with this report, especially when the Chinese are also out there spreading disinformation, actively spreading inf- disinformation in a very similar to way way to what we've seen from the Russians. In recent years, I mean, this has become, as Reem wrote earlier this week, a real propaganda war, in fact. Right. And Reem, uh, in a sense, uh, France or Paris is very much feels like the front line of, of that war. You have a particularly assertive uh, Chinese embassy and ambassador. Give us a flavour of what they've been doing and how France is trying to handle it. So the Chinese ambassador uh, to France is someone who sort of rose to fame uh, when he was in Canada. So it was his last post before he was sent to, to France at the end of 2019. And in Canada, you might recall, there was a pretty big diplomatic tiff between China and Canada. And he was super virulent in uh, the Canadian press. And he has continued to be so in France. And it's very interesting because throughout my reporting on this, uh, you know, officials have in private asked, wondered out loud, why was this particular ambassador sent to France at this particular time? 
uh, you know, at the end of December, uh, at the end of 2019. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has been trying to build a, a better uh, relationship with China. And yet the Chinese sent this super virulent ambassador who, since the beginning of this sort of uh, san uh, health crisis, started publishing on the Chinese embassy site here notes, blog posts that are supposedly anonymous, but everyone who studies China knows that nothing would be published on the website of the embassy without the oversight of the ambassador himself. And these notes have been quite offensive. One in particular attacked France, basically made fun, derided its treatment of uh, senior citizens in, uh, in light of this crisis. Also, complete lie, said that dozens of French parliamentarians had co-signed a letter by Taiwan calling the director general of the WHO. Uh, I'm not sure I can even say the word on the podcast. No, I think we can say a racist, used a racist uh, epithet or term. Yeah, this is it. And it's, uh, it feels like there's a mixture going on. These, these, these posts, yeah, as you say, are, you know, apparently, you know, written by a Chinese uh, diplomat who uh, doesn't use his name, but apparently has a talent for, for blogging or journalism and just gets to post these things on, on the site. And one of the interesting things I think about this, if you read the EES report that did finally emerge, is that you can see a mixture of what might be called, you know, messaging uh, attempts to kind of control the narrative and then, of course, outright falsehoods. And it feels like nobody has figured out a great way to deal with this, right? Yeah, I, I just think, you know, that we also need to look at this in the context of what's going on between the US and China at the moment. And and this goes well beyond the corona crisis. I mean, we, we had these these tensions, obviously, on the, on the trade front before this crisis, and they've escalated since. And it's all wrapped up now in Trump's re-election as well. I think many listeners will remember that he was making very sort of friendly remarks about China at the beginning of the corona crisis as he was trying to come to some sort of resolution of, of the trade deal and sort of downplayed the virus uh, in general. And now, as he's seen the impact that it's having, he, he's sort of declared China as, you know, the, the enemy and has really focused on this point of, you know, well, how did this virus get out of China and where did it come from and why are they being so secretive about it? And I think that the, the Europeans who are already sort of between the U.S. and China in many respects have gotten sucked into this uh, to this vortex, as it were. And it doesn't look like it's going to end uh, anytime soon because the Chinese have become, you know, as, as we said, you know, much more aggressive on this front. At one point in recent weeks, they were even accusing the U.S. of, you know, planning the virus in China, the U.S. Army somehow getting into China and planning the virus there, which is obviously completely absurd as well. And there's no, there's no evidence for that. And I think that they've now sort of said that that was just a joke or something. But in, in any case, uh, it seems like the Europeans are increasingly finding themselves between these two fronts. Yeah, and kind of caught. And how, Fran how is France trying to handle this? Because in a sense, France has at least gone a bit further in terms of diplomatic action, right, Reem? Listen, let's just be blunt about this. France, Germany, the EU, they just don't have the power right now to stand up to China, even if they wanted to. They're not America. We just have to kind of accept that. They're very dependent on China right now, not just in terms of trade and sort of the economic recovery that's going to come after the crisis, but right now in the midst of this crisis, it is a vitally dependent relationship. France 
cannot get out of this crisis without China cooperating and continuing to send reliable masks, PPE, for France to be able to just get out of the current health crisis. France had a huge shortage of masks um, and other things. They don't have tests, for example. They were reliant on China for their testing. That has put the French in particular in a very difficult position. If you notice, even German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's not exactly known for, you know, virulent kind of statements, even she came out publicly and explicitly said that there's a need for transparency on the origin of this virus and how it spread across the world. French President Emmanuel Macron wasn't able to say as much publicly, explicitly. When we speak to French officials, they, of course, refute that France has not sort of taken such a, a strong stance. They say that it's not true, that they have very frank and tough conversations when there is a need for that with, with China. And then they say, you know, Macron did ask for transparency. Look at the G7 and G20 communiques, which clearly are not French communiques. You know, they're obviously multilateral communiques. And finally, when really pressed multiple times, they say, of course, all transparency will be necessary uh, on the origins and the way it spread, but not right now. Right now, you know, the main focus is the health crisis. And until the health crisis is under control, no one should be trying to complicate the situation further by either antagonizing China or requesting investigations. The other thing that they bring up, it's that who would have the mandate to carry out such an investigation. I mean, I guess that's true, right? I mean, the, the, but, uh, you know, you can find a way if you wanted to do it, you could set up a task force, there's ways to Precisely. do it. Precisely. But I think the interesting thing also is just that, you know, what, what I find interesting looking from here as well is that, uh, as you know, the French foreign minister did call in the ambassador at one point over this uh, disinformation stuff. And uh, as you reported earlier this week, uh, you know, the Chinese embassy doubled down by basically publishing a new one of these posts. So this is, I think, the interesting thing here is that in, the, in this kind of uh, kind of raw power struggle, if you like, the Chinese are just basically not being impressed or, or showing any signs of taking account of kind of European sensitivities here. But I, and I think the reason it's significant is because it's not something that we've really seen from the Chinese in the past, mm. you know, in, in this kind of blunt way. And in, in reality, they've been making inroads into Europe for years, and it's been very much sort of you know, on, on the QT, they've tried not to make a big deal about it, try not to draw much notice, you know, acquiring companies, establishing, you know, lobbying operations in various places. And especially as we've discussed before in Southeast Europe, they've done quite a lot there. But this kind of aggressive in-your-face propaganda is just, it's just not something that we've seen China do here. They do it a lot in Asia. And I think that's a very important shift. And it seems unlikely that things will will shift back it does does feel like this is a a new uh sort of phase and in fact just this week the largest transport plane in the world was used to ship 10 million masks from china to leipzig and the plane was met by german defense minister and the still head of the christian democrats annegret karmbauer and that really shows how important it is for the germans to tell the Chinese how important their help is to them, because this is not the kind of thing that the German defense minister would normally be doing. Right. Yeah, this is it. It's not just um, 
it's not just about receiving, it's also about showing appreciation seems to be uh, seen as important at the moment. I mean, this is the thing, what we're talking about seems to me, you know, there is clearly a diplomatic balancing act here. I think one of the striking things about the way that the European External Action Service handled this as they kind of tried to pretend that there wasn't one, which was, you know, not very clever, uh, not very credible. And, um, you know, just in terms of their handling of the PR of the whole thing, you know, meant that it all attracted a whole lot more attention than otherwise would have if this report had just been quietly put on a on a website saying things that are pretty un- uncontroversial and pretty much in the public domain. So I think there's a there's a lesson on the PR front there as well, which I'm sure... But, but it also showed that the External Action Service leaks like a sieve. And I, I think this is part of the problem in the EU, is that whenever Matt, there's this any is not controversy... A this is not a problem. Yeah, it's not a problem for us, but it <laughs> might be a long-term <laughs> problem for them. Yeah, well, that's that for them have, to They worry have about. difficulty keeping <laughs> secrets, even when they don't have, you know... Well, even when they don't have secrets to keep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think we'll probably leave it there. We... You know, we've we've stuck just to one topic, but it's a big one. It does feel like, you know, really one of the topics of the moment. So we'll come back to to others in uh, subsequent weeks. Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Now, earlier in the week, the French economist Thomas Piketty spoke with Politico's Florian Eder and Marion Soletti about the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis in a conversation that took place via Zoom, was streamed live on our website and included questions from our readers. And Florian, the author, of course, of the Morning Brussels Playbook newsletter, joins us now to bring us some of the highlights from the conversation. Hi, Florian. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, glad to hear it. So now, maybe just for listeners uh, who might not be so familiar with uh, Thomas Piketty, can you give us a, a brief introduction, as you did in Playbook the other day? Tell us a bit about him and his work and his views. Sure. He is uh, a French economist, a professor at the Paris School of, uh, of Economics, so an economics professor. He is uh, a poster boy of the left, I would say, and he is a really best-selling author. His uh, most famous book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, sold millions of copies. And now last year, he just published another book. It's called uh, Capital and Ideology. And uh, in both these oeuvres, uh, Dumas Piketty uh, talks and writes about uh, income inequality and how to what to do about it. Mm. And we should say his work is, is not uncontroversial. Some people uh, dispute, uh, as is the nature of these things often, uh, some of his, of his findings. But the focus when you spoke to him was on the, on the current crisis to a large extent. And let's just hear from when you asked him about what he expects from uh, the recovery programme around the coronavirus crisis and what he sees as some of the most serious consequences of the crisis. Well, what's too early to say is, you know, what, what are going to be the final casualties of the epidemics? How is it going to develop in the different parts of the world? What, what we already know, let, let me start by saying that, you know, this crisis illustrates, you know, the, the, the violence of, of inequality. You know, we can see, so, you know, between rich and poor countries potentially, but also within rich countries, you know, within France, within Europe, uh, you know, the lockdown uh, doesn't mean at all the same thing. You know, if you're in a big apartment, if you're in a very small house, or if you are homeless, it doesn't mean at all the same thing. You know, if you have good uh, unemployment benefit to cover your income loss, or if you don't. And, and you know, what we realize, uh, you know, I think we've not done enough to begin with, you know, in order to develop, uh, you know, income 
maintenance mechanism uh, that would uh, uh, apply not only you know to the regular uh, full-time permanent uh, wage earners but also to a large group of workers which have grown over time in uh, European economies which are Uh, self-employed, self-entrepreneur, uh, temporary workers, uh, you know, Uber-type uh, delivery workers, uh, all sorts of part-time jobs, or you know, even people who are regular wage earners but who were uh, on a temporary contract and whose temporary contract ended a bit before, a bit after the beginning of the lockdown, you know, they don't have the proper income support system. This creates huge inequality, and this is also bad. Of course, for the you know whether we're going to limit the, the magnitude of the of the crisis and you know the, the lowering of, of of GDP this year. Now, uh, Florian uh, Thomas Piketty also sees some big problems with the current EU economic policy making setup. Let's hear what he told you and Marion about that. The rule of unanimity for all budgetary matters is something that just doesn't work and will not work. And, you know, the only reason why the European Central Bank has been able to do something over the past 10 years, you know, since the 2008 financial crisis, that, of course, it's not subject to the rule of unanimity, the simple majority rule. And, but you cannot ask everything from a central bank. So we have a complete asymmetry, you know, in our governance system in Europe. So, I mean, you all know that, everybody knows that, but, you know, this is something we should not get accustomed to, you know. So what's the way out? Well, as, as we know, we are not going to have unanimity in order to get rid of unanimity. You know, we've been pretending for a long time that we will have this, but, you know, of course, we know that this won't happen. So the only solution is, you know, that... Uh, a subgroup of countries uh, develop uh, you know, separate decision-making mechanism through majority, through also more transparent and open you know, decision-making. You know, the, the fact that we still have today you know, this uh, uh, Eurozone uh, meeting or, or meeting of head of state uh, which uh, meet you know, behind closed doors, that, you know, nobody knows the arguments that are being exchanged publicly. You know, I, I know, you know people in Brussels are accustomed to this and think that this is, uh, this is the only way to organize things, but this is a disaster. You know, this is exactly what makes everybody hate Europe, and this will have to change. So there he talks about the idea of a core of countries going ahead on their own. What's he proposing that they actually do? Well, he uh, proposes that they actually do what another group of countries uh, doesn't want to do and doesn't <laughs> want to take part in, uh, that is issuing joint debt. So uh, he proposes France uh, and others to go to the financial markets and say, uh, here we are, uh, we are uh, together here, and each of us will guarantee for the whole sum uh, that this money will be paid back. So Eurobonds with a small group of countries, basically. Okay, let's hear now who he thinks might be part of that core group and how it might work. It should, of course, be open to every country. And, you know, the objective is to convince as soon as possible every country from the Eurozone to enter. And, of course, also to convince every country outside the Eurozone to enter the Eurozone and to enter this mechanism. But to begin with, we have to start with, you know, whoever is ready to start. So who's ready to start? I think, you know, Spain, Italy, France, probably Portugal, Belgium, Greece, Let's see, you know, if we take as a proportion of the population of the Eurozone, uh, because after all, we're supposed to be in a democracy, well, I think there's already a vast majority. Okay? So I think if we add 
you know, majority rule decision making with the Eurozone Assembly, uh, you know, with, uh, say, members from Parliament uh, uh, in proportion to population, you know, in effect, you know, this is what we would have. And so the only reason why we don't have it, you know, is because we have this veto power uh, by, you know, sometimes very small population. And, you know, it, it simply cannot work. So I think, you know, you, you, at this stage, in my view, you know, France should make an explicit proposal for such a mechanism, you know, open to every country, but, but saying clearly, you know, after a certain date, you know, people who don't want to join, well, you know, we're going to start with whoever is there. So maybe it will be just uh, Italy, Spain, France, uh, Portugal. You know, I don't know who will be there. Okay, so that's Thomas Piketty setting out his idea there. Florian, you know, how much chance is there of this uh, actually happening? What are the big obstacles here? Well, we have to say that this idea was uh, was a lot talked about more behind closed doors, honestly, than uh, than out there uh, in public, at least by policymakers, because some people warned that this is a very dangerous idea, because it would, uh, of course, make divisions and deep divisions that exist in the eurozone and we know of uh, make obvious and bring them to the light of the day, basically, that there is no uh, unity and that there is uh, only a small group of, of countries that want to jointly borrow money from the market. So is there any chance of, of this happening? Uh, I don't think so in the short term, at least, because one thing is that it is uh, regarded as dangerous by others. And the other thing is that, um, and he did not really have a very good answer to, to that question, um, what's it worth and what's it there for, uh, uh, such an idea? The idea of, of eurobonds, of jointly borrowing money, is of course that uh, the refinancing cost is, is lower um, compared to when Italy or Spain uh, uh, go to the markets themselves. Mm. Now, one of the interesting things about the conversation, uh, as I said, was we also took uh, questions uh, from some readers. And one of the ones you put to him was that what he was proposing was a multi-speed Europe on steroids. Let's hear what he had to say about that. Yeah, you know, multi-speed Europe has been there for forever. Uh, and maybe you have noticed that there's one country uh, out of the 28 countries that just left the European Union, you know, a couple of months ago. So, you know, what are we going to wait? You know, are we going to wait for the, the 28 countries to become 27, 26, 20, you know, before we, we ask ourselves? You know, I think at some point, yes, this is multi-speed Europe because it's going to be difficult to have a unanimity decision, you know, to make progress in the direction of common taxation. But remember that, you know, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Spain uh, make close to 75% of the population and GDP of, of Eurozone. And, you know, of course, Eurozone is not the entire European Union, but it is sort of the most integrated part of the, of the European Union. And these four countries make 75% of the population. So, you know, I think if, if these countries move, or at least if, you know, three out of four of these countries, you know, move, and, you know, ideally four out of four and, you know, as many as possible right away, you know, I think it will create a movement which, you know, most countries, if not all, will, will join pretty fast. Let, let me also say, that if we don't do this kind of change, what we're going to have, just like in the past 10 years, is a completely asymmetric uh, balance of, of power between budgetary decision-making and monetary decision-making. So we are going to have unanimity rule on budgetary side, so very little action. Therefore, the monetary side, so the European Central Bank, which has majority decision-making, will have to do all the work. Now, they can keep doing that. 
And if there is no progress in terms of common budget, common tax system, etc., this is what will happen because there will be such a strong pressure on the European Central Bank to do something that there will be no other solution. Now, in the long run, I, I don't think this is good because in terms of democratic accountability, in terms of democratic transparency, you, know, you cannot ask to a board of central bank you know, to, to, to take so much responsibility. And, and, uh, but they will have to do something. And I guess, Florian, that, that just does bring up the whole question of, of can uh, the EU stay together over this? Can the Eurozone stay together? Or are we heading to a kind of more of a multi-speed Europe? He argues that it really exists already. What's your reading of it at the moment? I mean, it is, of course, true what he says, that a multi-speed Europe exists already. We have uh, many, many different, uh, more or less concentric circles in the in the European Union the Eurozone, the Schengen area, and others and others. So, uh, of course, there is um, a kind of uh, a sense of multi-speed. And Emmanuel Macron also thinks that it's a good idea uh, to go forward, uh, to not always wait for uh, the slowest member of the European Union. So I wouldn't exclude that we see more of that if it is wise uh, to experiment with such things as joint bonds given out by a small group of countries in the midst of a crisis. And everybody says it's the deepest crisis since World War II. Uh, and this week, uh, on Thursday, uh, we've had new economic uh, numbers and forecasts from across the European Union, which show that it's actually actually a really uh, a deep crisis. What I'm trying to say is it's probably not advisable uh, to experiment with uh, such things that uh, other people say are very dangerous in the middle of a crisis as we are facing it at the moment. Right. I imagine that would be at the very least uh, the uh, strong majority view. But still interesting to hear uh, Piketty's uh, ideas. And one of the things he says there is, you know, that we in Brussels may think things will always stay the same, but, uh, you know, sooner or later they may change and look quite different. So we'll see. Florian, you've got another one of these um, conversations, playbook live conversations coming up on Monday. Uh, Tell us a bit more about that. On Monday, indeed, we are talking about the same issue, about the same topics, more or less, with uh, Irene Tinali, who is the chair of the uh, Econ Committee, so the Committee on uh, Economic and Financial Affairs in the European Parliament. My colleague, Bjarke Smith-Meyer, and I are going to talk uh, to her in a video call again over Zoom. And you can, of course, all sign up and and follow us. It's Monday morning at 11. Uh, Go to politico.eu and uh, watch out for uh, the ad that advertises actually uh, the virtual Playbook Live or go to our events page where you will find all the details. Sounds good. Okay, Florian, we'll look forward to that. And thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. And that's all we have time for on this 150th episode of EU Confidential. Before we sign off, as promised, a little more love. The Public Transport Authority here in Brussels has recently been sending a bus around the city, broadcasting voice messages to people from their loved ones who can't deliver those messages in person due to the lockdown. So we thought we'd bring you a little flavour of that. And on that loving note, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. 